0: I went wandering.
1: Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face to face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We have Jay, we have Zane, we have Gussie, and we have Cricket. Very good. Applause for them. You know, Zane, is there anything you'd like to say? Zane told me a really great joke, but it's way too long for him to share now. Jay, Jay, (laughs) is there anything you'd like to say? Jesus rocks. Jesus rocks in the youth vernacular. That means he's Lord and King. For those of you who don't understand, and Zane, uh, you know this is all one family right here. And I was able with Mary and and Cassidy in London to sit down and talk to them. Their parents were interviewed for the X Files show tonight. I mean, not tonight, but they were interviewed today. And just amazing stories from both of them. And they came out from Mormonism less than a year ago. Their their parents, uh, Michael and Cynthia. And these kids, this is really amazing. They just, they love, they went to Christian church once and they said, we never want to go back. We loved it. And they're totally involved and totally love the Lord. So it's really an honor to see all of you guys. Thanks for being on the show. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to participate in his ministry. May he be with you and us tonight sundays two things we hold church deconstructed every sunday go to www.campus with hyphens in between.com for more information like time and directions um am 820 the truth replays heart of the matter on sundays from 1 to 2 p.m uh and so am 820 is a great uh, christian radio uh station here in in utah And they have very good programming, uh, courtesy of Russ East and his skills there. So we highly recommend them. In March, one thing to remember, schedule in your calendars. We're going to be holding our annual open water traveling baptisms this coming March 10th. It's a Saturday at the following locations. We're going to be at 9 a.m. in in Logan at the Alpine Church. And then at 12 p.m. we'll be in Riverdale at the Alpine Church there. 3 p.m. in Salt Lake City at the Adventure Church, and 6 p.m. in Provo at the Provo Baptist Church. Bring a towel, change of clothes, a desire to publicly commit your life to the Lord, and uh, be willing to be baptized by water there in that. Uh, uh, by either myself or someone that, that, who's a believer who comes along with you to do it. It's, it doesn't matter in that way. It's your commitment to the Lord. It's between you and the Lord, and so we look forward to that. Summer of 2012, um, take a look. Hi, I'm Sean McCraney. I'm sitting in the middle of a television studio in Salt Lake City, Utah, what we call the Mecca of Mormonism. For the past six years, I've been blessed to host a weekly live call-in television program where we compare and contrast Mormonism with biblical Christianity. Uh, Our ministry is to reach out to the LDS with the Good News of Jesus Christ, relationship over religion, and it's also to reach other people who are seeking to know the Lord. We also are an equipping ministry, and we seek to help other Christians understand how to relate and speak to and address confidently the issues that stand between Mormonism and biblical Christianity. We're living in an age where Mormonism is front and center uh, on the national and world uh, stage. Uh, Bible-believing Christians around the world are more and more embracing Mormonism, uh, which is an aggressive proselytizing faith, and uh, and they're saying they're Christian. Are they? Uh, in response to this, uh, our ministry is produce has produced a book. Called "Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity Face to Face." It's a 650-page uh, volume that uh, speaks to these issues, and we think is a clear and concise way. Beginning in uh, March of 2012, this book will be available in all major Christian bookstores around the nation. Uh, beginning in June of this year, and this is the part we we hope you'll listen. We will be touring uh, the nation uh, every week in an effort to to further equip uh, Christian ministries, Christian churches, uh, uh, Christian uh, television networks, Christian radio program listeners with the tools necessary to understand the difference, biblical differences between Mormonism and Christianity. So let's show you the dates of where we're going to be. Please take note of these. Uh, First, we're going to be in this area, the greater East Coast, Monday, June 4th through Saturday, June 16th. And you can see the states and the areas Then we'll be. The next place we'll be will be <laughs> southeast Monday, June 18th through uh, Saturday, June 30th. We'll, then we'll be in the greater Illinois area uh, Monday, July 2nd through Saturday, July 14th. And then in the greater Texas area, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, July. And then we'll be on the greater West Coast and we're going to be uh, working through there the end of July, July 30th through September 1st, or a full month in, uh, in the West Coast area in those states that you see listed there on your screen. If you're with a Christian television network, a Christian radio program, or know of one, uh, a Christian church, a Christian group, please take note of those dates uh, where we'll be in your area, and if you'd like to hear a clear Uh, understandable, biblically-based comparison of Mormonism and Christianity, let us know. Uh, We don't charge for this. We don't want love offerings held on our behalf. We want to inform and equip the nation with the truth and with facts. Having been LDS uh, for 40 years of my life and a Christian pastor for the past seven, we will do the topic justice. So what can you do? Get a pen and paper, write down this information, our email address, our phone number, and our website, and uh, contact us. Say, listen, we understand you're going to be in Florida. When can we schedule a time? When can we schedule a date? Go to your pastor. Go to the network that you know that uh, broadcasts in your area and say, we have a, we have a qualified uh, uh, ministry that will fairly and uh, justly but uh, truthfully compare and contrast Mormonism in uh, whatever time slot that you have for us. We thank you for, the, for you uh, prayerfully considering this, and maybe we'll see you in the summer of 2012. If you're awake after that, I'd be amazed. <laughs> I, was, I was falling asleep. Sorry, we're, we're gonna fix that. Um, anyway, if you're an Alethea ambassador, also we're gonna be contacting you about helping us out with that. So uh, Friday nights, 8 p.m. every Friday night, Bishop Earl, hosts uh, The X-Files and right here on TV 20, we are really getting some outstanding uh, interviews from Bishop Earl and the guests who have come in and had the courage to come in and explain uh, how the Lord has reached them and pulled them from Mormonism. I heard a woman interviewed today who said that prior, while she was LDS active and faithful, she had a hard time, a very hard time reading scripture whether it be the Bible book of, or what they call Scripture in the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. And then as a Christian, she says, I love reading the Bible. I read it every day. And my wife is the same way. She never read before, and now she's in the Word every day. That, that's what happens when you get spiritualized and you're born again. So we praise God for what's going on there. If you want to be interviewed, go to www. Uh, MormonXFiles.tv, and we'll go from there. Got an email from Myrna that said, in the last two weeks I have heard Mormon bishops in the news and on TV referred to as pastor. Have the LDS changed this to seem more Christian? Absolutely. I don't know how they've changed it, uh, but it may have gotten legs with Romney calling himself a pastor in one of the early debates. But in all the years I was LDS and going all the way back to uh, prior to the Brigham Young era, the term was never, ever, ever used in the LDS church or out of it referring to LDS clergy. As a means to seem more Christian, the Mormon marketing machine is getting the, the media somehow to refer to its leaders as pastors. I kid you not, there is not a Mormon on earth today who has ever heard any of their leaders referred to as a pastor ever. So you can see how they work. Now, granted, they have an article of faith that Joseph Smith articulated years and years and years ago that says, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. That's the only time way back in the 1830s this was mentioned, the word pastor, and it's just referring to the title that's used in the Bible, but it's not a name that is used or a title that's used in the LDS church. Uh, But, you know... Only this past year have I ever heard this being done. And again, it's they'll do anything to survive, anything to seem and appear Christian. There has been a lot in the press lately about the murders of the LDS Powell family by their LDS patriarch and father, Josh Powell. This past week, there was an uproar about where to bury the father who uh, took the lives of his son so horribly and tragically. Someone tried to have the man buried next to the boys uh, or in, and then in the same cemetery. And then others freaked out and demanded he be buried elsewhere. And so there was this big debate going on in the secular news and on the local uh, LDS-hosted uh, news channels about this. And it's been fascinating to listen to them both from the LDS talking heads and from the secular news. And uh, essentially they seem to agree, Josh Powell should not be allowed to be buried uh, in the same cemetery uh, or especially near his sons. The other day I watched a television program where a panel of LDS sisters got together and said, it's just not right. He, Josh Powell, shouldn't be surrounded by all the love uh, of people who visit that cemetery. Huh? Huh? And then another chimed in saying something to the effect that he just doesn't deserve it. Can you imagine the extended family having to go and visit those boys and seeing him there? Seeing him there. Uh, naturally, the secular news agrees with these attitudes. This is the way, you know, you think. And uh, I've got news for them all. First of all, neither Pal, the father, no, nor the boys are there, okay? And perhaps most importantly, One of the most distinguishing (sighs) characteristics of a Christian is that no matter what, they are told by their king to show forth unconditional love and forgiveness. Unconditional love and forgiveness. I never hear these positions coming either from the secular news, of course, or from the LDS. How come nobody in the Mormon, uh, supposedly Christian church, is saying, well, it's a horrible tragedy and a terrible thing that Josh Powell did, but let them be buried together. Uh, uh, they need, He needs forgiveness. He needs love unconditionally. Why isn't the LDS, or why aren't the LDS talking heads, um... Suggesting prayer for the entire community and the entire family, and praying for forgiveness uh, for the Father, and put the whole event in essence in God's hands. And just let the thing be the way a Christian would have to deal with it at some point in their existence. Let God take care of this and heal our hearts from this horrible thing. Listen, showing unconditional love does not condone evil behavior. Um, nor does it detract from the recipients of evil behavior. But it is commanded by the Lord. It's commanded to love our enemies, those who despitefully use us, etc. etc. Forgiving, forgiving, long suffering, etc. I would suggest you don't and won't hear such attitudes coming from the LDS people because LDS love, like LDS salvation, is completely conditional, and it's predicated entirely on the behaviors of a person. Since PAL's exit strategy didn't include time for true repentance, according to them, the scarf method, PAL is anathema, verboten, and the LDS and uh, secular community have agreed upon this. Heroes and villains, all religions and secular institutions love to have heroes and villains. Fortunately, Jesus sees uh, humanity in the same light, and he loved this all so much, he came and died for the sins of all. Um, I realize some viewers of ours aren't going to agree with this, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Uh, Christians forgive everyone of everything, all the time, every time, period. How about a moment from the Word? In John chapter four, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. You're probably familiar with it. And after a great discourse, Jesus tells her something that Mormons differ greatly from than Christians. What does he say? It's in John 4, 24. He says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, admittedly, the King James Version uh, does a, poor job of translating this because they insert the article A before the word spirit there. A better reading would be God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But this does not, as some LDS would like to ridiculously claim, change the fact that God is spirit. LDS defenders who like to take the notion of God, one God, and break him into three gods, Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three separate distinct individual gods will say, well, how could Jesus then be God if God is spirit? This is their argument when they read that phrase. So let's approach the passage in context to help. First, where is Jesus And who is he talking to in this setting? He's in Samaria and he's speaking to a Samaritan woman who was worshiping in a way that was not in line with true worship. Jesus makes this clear regarding their temple. This is the point of the statement being said. Religious observances from the the flesh, whether by Jews or Samaritans or pagans or whatever, means nothing, Jesus is saying. Our fleshly approaches to religion and God are are not meaningful those who worship the true and living God must, Jesus uses that word, must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, whether someone is worshiping God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, which are one God, they must worship in or from their spirit and in truth. The second point is God being spirit and therefore being invisible and far removed from fallen man He became flesh. He became the Son of God and through this fleshly Son of God shed blood reconciles all men and women through spiritual rebirth to the invisible God who dwells on high and uh, the Father and the Son being in flesh. Explaining Jesus' incarnation, Philippians 2, 5, 8 explains it, I think, really, really well. It says... Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, that doesn't mean physically, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. That's talking about his physical form. And being found in fashion as a man, talking about that physical form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Was Jesus God? Absolutely. The invisible spirit part of his spirit essence of him, was 100% God, with his flesh being 100% man. And those who worship Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, must worship them from their spirit, uh, from their personal spirit, the individuals, to God, who is spirit. I hope that makes some sense. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, in heaven on high, we love you and need you. We pray you'll be with our audience uh, members, wherever they may be, at whatever time they may view these, uh, this show, that you will reach to them with your truth, that their eyes may be open, their ears will be unplugged, their heart will be defatted, and they will be converted, and then they will be healed and come to know your truth. We pray for our volunteers, staff, and everything else we stand in need of. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, looking at the Book of Mormonian, we have found some surprises, haven't we? We uprooted it two or three weeks ago. We got the big Book of Mormonian fully grown, and we opened up its pages, and we found words that didn't exist at the time when it was supposed to have been written on the plates, and animals and plants mentioned that word around at the time. Just all sorts of, of fun that just screams big, fat, phony counterfeit pretending to be Scripture. I mean, that's, that's what the Book of Mormonian screams when you really look at it, okay? Well, let's talk about more of the findings, shall we? Now, there's a word that the LDS apologists and defenders get all frothy about when it comes to the Book of Mormon. That word is chiasmus. And in modern times, John F. Kennedy was kind of a master of chiasmus. You probably remember his most famous chiasmus. Do you remember it? He said, as- not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Simply put, chiasmus is kind of like in music, uh, the notes A, B, B, A. That would be the way to understand literary chiasmus. It's where something is stated and the statement ends in a center theme and is then inverted and restated the opposite way. It's an emphatic writing style where main ideas are inverted and then restated. And lingu- uh, linguists call it um, a rhetorical parallelism, okay? That's the way they describe this this word called chiasmus. Now, chiasmus appears in many languages, including English, in the writings of William Shakespeare, in uh, Ugaritic prose, whatever that is, uh, Biblical Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek in the writings of Homer, and Latin in the writings of Cicero. Uh, We find an example of chiasmus in Genesis 9, 6, which says, Whosoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay? There's a a chiasmus written in Hebrew. Because it appears in languages like Hebrew, Mormon apologists get all excited because the Book of Mormon was supposedly written by peoples who came from Palestine and who would communicate while writing on these plates in chiasmus uh, terms. Uh, in other words, because examples of chiasmus can supposedly be found in the Book of Mormonian, Morm- Mormons use chiasmus as evidence that it came from an ancient place. I like to call these evidences that the uh, LDS use stretch evidences. I mean, you really have to stretch when, you, when, you, when you're trying to prove the Book of Mormon true in using evidences like this. Chiasmus was probably uh, on the mind of uh, 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 Apostle Jeffrey Holland When he said in October of 2009 General Conference That the Book of Mormon was quote Bursting with Semitic structure um, This was a really odd claim Since the Book of Mormon was supposedly written In a uh, mythical language called Reformed Egyptian Not in Hebrew And uh, And uh and that's interesting in and of itself because Jews have never wanted anything to do with Egypt. So I don't know why they would come to the, holy, uh, to, the, to the Americas and decide to write on something from a land that they really have never liked. But anyway, way back in 1969, LDS attorney named John Welsh supposedly discovered a variety of instances of chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. It was Welch's claim that Joseph Smith, in all likelihood, was not aware of this style of writing, and he therefore concluded that Joseph had to have translated the book from a genuine ancient source. Does Chiasmus truly exist in the Book of Mormon? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it seems like it's in places, uh, but critics of LDS founder of chiasmus this attorney they say that he quote fashioned a chiasm by selecting elements from repetitious language which we know joseph used creatively labeling elements ignoring texts impairing pairing imbalanced elements and even including a asymm- asymmetrical elements so uh the fad of finding chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, once this was announced in 69, just, be, just boomed within Mormon circles. And Welch himself warned Mormon people to be careful of trying to find chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, where it's not actually present. He said, quote, some people have gone overboard with this search, and caution must be employed. Otherwise, it is possible to find chiasmus in the telephone book. And the effort becomes meaningless. One must be careful in this quest, however, to avoid the problems of the hammer syndrome, meaning a person who's holding a hammer thinks everything is a nail. Uh, To the person who knows only chiasmus and no other form of literary composition, everything may start to look like chiasm, end quote. His warning went unheeded. When I was an LDS seminary teacher, there was another man who taught early morning seminary with me in Southern California. And... Every single day that guy had a chalkboard and he had Book of Mormon chiasmus. And I, I mean, I never understood it. I'd stand there staring at it, trying to say, well, where, where is it now? It was right here. Do you see it? And I just thought I was stupid. But now I'm not even sure it was there. So, um, but let's say that there are vi- verifiable chiastic phrases found in the Book of Mormon. Does this make it... Uh, Does this support the idea that it came from uh, authentic ancient writings? Not in the least. If it did, then we could say John F. Kennedy resorted to uh, ancient writings to write his uh, presidential inaugural address. We've got to remember the literary style and form called chiasmus is found all over the place. I'm sure I could go if I could find love letters I wrote in high school to a girl You would find chiasmus in there in some manner. Your lips are so sweet, my sweet. I am biting my lips to sweetly kiss them. I mean, it's, it's just poetic language. You get all wrapped up and, you, and you, you'll write like that. And, if, and, and, and there might be genuine chiasmus that, that they call it, but it is so overused. And remember, Shakespeare had it and, and Cicero had it and all these other writers have used it. But the Mormons act like this is the proving point that the Book of Mormon is true, ancient scripture. We neither can we forget that Joseph Smith cut his teeth as a boy because of his mother reading the Bible to him. He knew the Bible very, very well. And so he probably had tuned his ear and he was a genius. He probably tuned his ear and his writing style to mimic, I mean, he wrote the the Book of Mormon in King's English. So, I mean, and he's able to use all of these and nows fairly properly. And so he probably was speaking in the tones like that just to make it sound like it was more authentic. And so some of them come out. I mean, he could come up with revelations that sounded chiasmic. You know, what he was going to have for breakfast. And thou, Joseph, ought to have oats of the field, for the field oats are good for thy breakfast. I mean, and he would spout this, and people would say, he's receiving a revelation from God. Bottom line, Joseph, I would suggest, merely echoed what he had heard and what he had grown up on his whole young life on the Bible, and it found its way into his book. Now, this is important. LDS apologists defend the Book of Mormon with all of its linguistic difficulties, issues, grammatical problems, anachronistic problems, by saying that Joseph merely translated what he had before him by using only the skills that he had as a person. So he could only give meaning to the characters that he saw in his hat by using the words that he knew would associate most closely to what he was seeing. So therefore, if Joseph saw in his uh, revelation tall brown animal, long leg bites sometimes, he put horse in the Book of Mormon, even though horses were not in America at the time. Now this is how they explain away the problems of the book. They go so far to do it. Listen to what LDS leader uh, George Albert Smith said in Journal of Discourse's 12:3335 in November 16th of 1869. Listen to this. I think we have a graphic. When the Lord reveals anything to men, he reveals it in language that accords with their own. If any of you were to converse with an angel, and you use strictly grammatical language, he, meaning the angel, would do the same. But if you use two negatives in a sentence, the heavenly messenger would use language to correspond with your understanding. And this very objection to the Book of Mormon is an evidence in its favor. Can you believe that? George Albert Smith said that if an angel came to somebody with a message from God, that angel would adopt their use of words and language style, no matter how poor it was, and then deliver the message from God in the same manner. This is why the Book of Mormon say the defenders of it came out the way it did. So if I crawled out from, out of a rock, all nappy-headed and bucktooth, and I'm standing there and an angel appears to me, and he says, Sean, and I say, well, golly, holly, Murphy Moo, it's a lot from the heavens. <laughs> then the angel would say, Liberation! I have a message for you from an hour above. That is what that guy is trying to say, how angels work with us. I mean, can you believe this? <laughs> Finally, uh, before we wrap it up with another topic, We gotta talk about the insipid measures they go to prove and give evidence for ancient scholarship. I call it junk scholarship. It was popularized by Hugh Nibley, uh, and this is how it works. They scour the land for anything that resembles anything they're trying to prove, and they use it. So, for example, let's say you wanted to prove that Santa Claus existed. You would open a blog. You would write about him existing. You know in your heart he exists. You would take photographs of half-eaten cookies left on Christmas morning. You would get testimony, video testimony of someone saying, I heard ho, ho, ho uh, in the air that night. And you would get tearful testimony of someone saying, I know Santa is true. I just know it. Okay? That's what you would do. And you would scour the earth for any evidences to prove it. You'd go to the North Pole. You'd find a hoof print. You'd say, aha, reindeer. That's how this this type of scholarship works, and it's the type that Mormons use, okay? There is really no larger group of, I really, 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 really want to believe a myth group than the LDS. And their scholars will say and do almost anything to give their myths legs. This is the basis for that Broadway play, The Book of Mormon. Uh, It's mocking the living heck out of these poor people who truly want to believe who are so gullible, but they're so blindsided by it, they're taking the fact that there's a a Broadway play as a compliment. Um, Using parallelism to prove their faith true, LDS people have taken photographs of of, uh, uh, pyramids in Mexico, they've taken pictures of flat, uh, pounded jewelry that people wear in Guatemala and they say, you see the shape of that jewelry necklace? That's the same thing with the Book of Mormon, but bigger. They, this is their, their scholarship methods and God, this is not the way God works. He doesn't work this way. He works in truth and he reveals his truth through facts, through substantiated facts. There was, has never been a solitary one single solitary bit of scientific, provable evidence for anything in the Book of Mormon. Their de- apologists and, and, and Daniel Peterson's at BYU and Farms will say, oh, we have so much of it. We have so much of it. And all of it is, that footprint couldn't have been an Nephite. That's how they do it. You know, and God provides us with scripture founded in real places, real history, real genetics, Real human beings, a real savior who came in real flesh and blood. He died on a real cross and he shed real blood for you, author and finisher of our faith. And Paul spends a lot of time warning us about the trickery and deception of false prophets and apostles who will try to sway you to these these lies. It's really very interesting. Um, next week, we are going to open up uh, with what I believe is one of the best deal breakers on the Book of Mormon. So make sure you turn in. Let's open up the phone lines. 801 973 801 973 8820 973 TV 20. First time callers, please. LDS callers preferred. And we could not make it without your support. We thank you for your prayers, for your emails for uh, your financial uh, support as God leads and you're sharing the ministry with others, take a look and prayerfully consider the following. We'll come back to your calls. You should see our camera, Lady Marnita. She's just dancing it back here. It's wonderful. All right, they're getting a round of applause for Marnita. <laughs> hey, we're going to go to Vince in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Vince, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Uh, hey, Sean, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Pretty good. Hey, um, I have uh, one main question and one kind of small question, I guess. Um, uh, on the doctrine of blood atonement, um, what sins do they believe are not forgivable by the blood of Jesus? And, uh, how do you, how did the LDS kind of do that today? Uh, cause I, 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 was talking to my sister brother in law, and, um, they said something about that. I didn't think they still believed it, but apparently they do. Yeah. Um, I understand that they don't go to a lot of the extremes they used to back in Brigham Young's time. Uh, what, what do they kind of do, I guess, to, well, uh, to. I
1: could be mistaken, but I believe. Still, Gary Gilmore was the last uh, I don't really know, but I think he may have been the last person in Utah to be executed by firing squad. They do firing squad here at the point of the mountain, uh, so that the prisoner's blood can be shed themselves to cover for the sin if they somehow were going to get some kind of forgiveness. Uh, it's an odd doctrine because a murderer in uh, Mormon uh, theology goes to a level of heaven. A murderer who does not believe Jesus and rejects Jesus goes to a level of heaven. Uh, So I don't understand the need. I guess the firing squad to shed your own blood might move you up a level or two if God forgives you. But that's the sin they say Jesus' blood won't uh, forgive, and that is the shedding of innocent blood. Some LDS uh, teachers, seminary leaders have suggested that adultery is another one and that it takes a long, 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 long time before you're going to receive forgiveness for that crime, but the one that I'm sure certain from Doctrine and Covenants, uh, I believe, is one thir- section 130 is uh, murder.
2: Okay. Did, how do they how do they believe that you can be atoned for that? I guess
1: shed in your own blood.
2: Like literally, like slitting the wrist, or
1: no, you don't do it yourself. You have the law do it, and uh, they shed the blood for the crime and. The, the, the phraseology that came out of Brigham Young is, then you might have a chance, you know, to be forgiven for that crime.
2: Wow. And I have one more small question. I'll make it quick. I know you've got people calling in, but um, I've been witnessing to my brother-in-law for a while, and uh, I've, I've given him so much evidence, and I've gotten a lot of good information from your show. And I've been bringing it up, and I, and I just point to ask him, do you believe Joseph Smith was a prophet? And he said, I hope so. You know, so I, you know, so I sent him at least twelve false prophecies that he gave, and I think I got it from org. Do you
1: have any other
2: suggestions that you think might help?
1: You know, uh, our method in in reaching, we do this to reach people who are really seeking to kind of snap them out. But my method, personally, and talking is always going to be preaching Jesus. Do you know him? Do you, uh, have you been saved? Do you know if you die where you go? And to use scripture to help support that, I kind of try to take everything off the table relative to Joseph because they they, they just, they sometimes they'll say, I don't care what you show me. I am going to still believe in in the church. So I sometimes believe the light is going to have far more power than the darkness of information like we give here. This is just one method, but I don't really think it's the best. I think the best is to share the Lord and to open scripture and say, do you believe this? Have you been born again? Do you believe his shed? But things like that, salvation by grace, and just kind of slowly share that.
2: Well, I think we need a, a Mormon dictionary, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because you know, I really don't know how to say it any other way. It just seems like it doesn't get in. So, You're uh, but we're seeds. still talking, and, and the lines are still open. So I'm really, Good. really happy about that. You know? so, Good. Way, I just wanted to ask you that. So.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Vince, and, and you're right. You do, it's it's like you're speaking to a wall. The, the glaze comes, and but you're planting seeds. And in time, uh, you know, as you plant God's word, it won't return void, and he will bring to fruition this work that you're doing with your brother. Do it in love. Do it with patience. He'll come around.
2: Well, thanks, bro. I appreciate that.
1: All right, Vince. God bless. God bless you, man. Okay, bye-bye. Amelia uh, writes and says, please... Tell me what the plot line is of the Book of Mormon. We're going to tell it in weeks to come. As soon as we open the book and start going through it, I'm going to give you the plot line then. Uh, We had a caller a few weeks back call, and he just said, you know, he said three times, I have traveled the entire world, Sean. I've never seen a, a church better, a people better than the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Lotta. How come all the characters I talk about talk like this? Um, I gotta come up with a new character. And he just kept talking about their good fruits and their good fruits, and, and we came back at him with some stuff, but here's another one. You know, it came from uh, the Salt Lake Trib, and uh, it says suicide death rates rise yet again in Utah. Coalition seeks to help people get the help they need. The number of suicides in Utah continues to climb, making it once again home to one of the highest suicide rates in the uh, country. It says it's a problem we've had for a long time, and it's not going anywhere, says Jenny Johnson, Educated Coordinator of the Utah Department of Health. On the back, it says a recent Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study of 2008 and 2009 data found that Utah had the highest percentage of adults with suicidal thoughts. 6.8% 6.8% compared with 2.1% in Georgia, the nation's lowest. You know, and I didn't really understand this till I moved here. And uh, I'm getting it more and more. I mean, there is oppression that comes with legalistic systems of perfection. Speaking of uh, perfection, one of the people on the coalition says, quote, as I have raised kids and been involved with a lot of kids over the years, we're noticing there's a deficit of kids who have never really learned how to fail, said White, who was also on the state suicide. Coalition. We've read stories, sad stories here, of LDS kids who have failed, and because of that failure, have taken their life. This is the bondage and the oppression that comes with this perfect system of perfect people perfecting themselves to become perfect gods. It's a lie, and that's why we get on this show and we try to say Jesus Christ is the solution to all of these things. Nothing else. No Joseph. No temple. No no uh, religion. Jesus Christ, and then you'll start going to church and getting involved in your relationship with Him and improving in your life, etc., etc. But you gotta get to the horse first, and that horse is Him. All right. So let's go to the next caller, and it seems like Anthony from Smithfield has a question about a great unknown place called Kolob.
0: A lot of kids over the years.
1: Anthony, turn down your TV. You're on the air. That's down. Okay, you're on the air, my friend. Okay. You're on the air.
0: Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, what's the science fiction premise that comes up about Kolob? Who lives there? Where does it come from? Why is it even in the Book of Mormon? And is it science fiction or is it something that they actually believe?
1: It's, it's, it's uh, a great question, uh, Anthony. And first of all, let me correct you. They don't say Kolob. They say Kolob. And you'll, you'll see in the—it's not in the Book of Mormon— it's in their book called The Pearl of Great Price, where Joseph Smith, now having been the prophet for a number of 14 years or so, is running amok in his imagination. No, no, it's not 14 years. He's been a prophet for a while. He's running amok, and he's talking about Kakao Beam and Kolob and Poka and all these things. And Kolob, he says, is the planet closest to where God dwells. Kolob is the planet closest to where God dwells. And funny, we just got someone, Charlie says that a new subdivision near St. George is called the Kolob subdivision. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I hope we didn't just promote it to some LDS viewers. Uh, what do you think about that, Anthony? Well, is that tied in with the
0: Quakers that live on the moon? Uh, and, and why do people actually... Do they still teach this in their seminar? Do they? Is this something that they still believe in, or do they realize it for the science fiction that it is? No. And and the delusions. I mean, I had heard that there's two full time astronomers at BYU that search for Klop. I mean, you got to be a pretty bright Bob. to be an astronomer. I can't believe they're bu- they buy into this.
1: Yeah, they have they have they have a whole division called Farms searching for. Uh, evidence of the Book of Mormon, too. And it's the same thing. They're searching deep space. Searching, they, they have groups in, in Israel searching for uh, evidence of Lehi. And uh, another waste of time and money. All to keep the myth perpetuated. You know, uh, they do still believe uh, faithfully in Kolob. In fact, in their hymn book, you could go to any ward house today, open up the hymn book, look in the index, and you'll see a song called, If You Could Hie to Kolob. Not if you could get high on Kolob. If you could high to Kolob, that means if you could get up to the planet close to God. So it fits right in line what you were saying about, you know, Joseph Smith talking about the people on the moon and Brigham Young talking about the inhabitants of the sun and speaking of it uh, all this way. If All of it is based on speaking about things that could not be proven, putting themselves up as, as if they had extra vision extra prophecy. And now that we live in a modern age of a little bit more reason and scientific instruments and things, we can show that this stuff is a joke. And yet the Mormons continue to cling to much of it. Great question, Anthony. Thanks for calling, my brother. Thank you. love you. Bye. Bye. Okay, let's go to Michael in Florida, line two. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Hey, Michael, you're on the air.
0: Oh, great, great. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, the question I was calling about, I've got, um, I've got three um, Mormon missionaries that uh, have been visiting me. Um, they've come at least, uh, I, think I think the last time was their sixth visit. And I've been sharing with them a lot of um, Mormon expose information from false prophecies to the Book of Abraham, fraud, uh, and all kinds of other things as well from the teachings about the inhabitants on the moon and the sun and all kinds of other things. And I've also been trying to uh, share with them about salvation. And I've mentioned the fact that uh, you uh, were a missionary and that you held positions within the Mormon Church and you were a dedicated Mormon. But even though that you had been through the various steps to obtain salvation through the Mormon way of doing things, that in fact you had not been, had a born again experience until you had heard the true message of the gospel on on Christian radio uh-huh. and before that you had not had a spiritual birth even though you p- thought you might have uh, because you went through the the steps that uh, the Mormon Church promotes that uh, will lead to salvation mm-hmm. and by sharing these things they've said well they don't know why you didn't have a spiritual birth until then because they've already had a spiritual birth themselves that they've been filled with the Holy Ghost so they don't need to get born again because they already are born again so the question I have is what do what what can I share with them to have them realize that they really aren't born again and that they are lost and that they need to um, turn their lives over to, uh, to the Lord so that's basically the, the question I have is what can I share with them that will get the, them to have their
1: eyes open when they come back I'm, I would just say, well, I would like to just talk to you about the spiritual rebirth. Uh, first of all, can you tell, can you kind of explain it to me? Uh, because one, you you know that they are uh, they believe that they are born innocent, and that spiritual rebirth is not emphasized, but uh, the mighty change, which is what Joseph Smith called spiritual rebirth in his Book of Mormon to bring forth a new Bible, is mentioned. But it's not ever emphasized. Spiritual rebirth in the Mormon sense, I mean, if they know their doctrine, is that they return to the sacrament table every Sunday. They repent of the sins they committed since the previous Sunday. They take the bread and the water and that renews the covenants they made at baptism, which is what they call spiritual rebirth. And then they go till the next week of trying to do their best and the mistakes they make, they take the sacrament again and that cleanses them as they renew the covenants they made at the water baptism. That is the LDS definition of rebirth. Eight years old, baptized, that's spiritual rebirth. You enter into the kingdom of heaven, the celestial kingdom by being baptized that way. So I would, knowing all that, I would say, well, tell me about your spiritual rebirth. If they're honest and they know their doctrine, they will just explain to you what we just said. If not, they'll say, well, I had spiritual rebirth last year while I was praying and the Lord said the Mormon church is true, you're born again. Then I would say, okay, so let's tell tell me what that means. Now say, what does spiritual rebirth mean to you? And, And say, please share. Because if they say, well, it means now that I'm saved, then you have to, like someone just said, we need a new dictionary. What does that mean? Does that mean that you live with God? again, as they would say, heavenly father again, or does it mean that you're going to be able to be in one of the kingdoms? What does saved mean? And then as you continue to question kindly and everything, it will come out that born again means nothing, nothing in the sense of what it means biblically. All it means is now they have done what they need to do to then work their way to be right with God if they do everything right. So it's going to take some time and some discussion, and, and you have to let them kind of hang themselves with their own words. And the reason they always will hang themselves is because they haven't been born again and they don't understand it. Those who have, if they're still LDS, will say, I've been born again, and it means I am going to live with God when I die, not based on anything I have done. It's based off his grace, uh, my faith on him, and I do nothing to get to the highest level of his kingdoms except believe on his son. And if someone says that who's LDS, they're on their way out. Does that help?
0: Yeah, that does help. Now, when they say things on the order of, well, you know, when they go into all the work stuff, you know, about enduring to the end and all these other
1: things as well. How do I uh, address that? I would agree. You would say, I agree that a Christian is going to endure to the end. A Christian is going to abide in the vine. A Christian is going to start producing a great fruit and it's going to happen over the process of their life and there's sanctification that will be going on of their flesh as the Holy Spirit works upon them. But in terms of salvation, they have been saved by their belief, by their, not by their, by their grace, through faith on the Lord. And so that's the difference. So they'll say, well, do you have to do anything after that? To be saved, you don't because you've already been saved. But what are you going to do as a result of being saved? You're going to graciously try to give all your life to helping others know Christ and to live your life in a righteous way. So that's how I would answer it if we were having a discussion.
0: Now, like you said, they'll end up hanging themselves as I take them through to get them to define what these words are. After I even get them to understand that they don't have the same definitions and comprehension as uh, mainstream Christianity has as far as uh, knowing the Lord, uh, how do I still bring them to a point where they will go ahead and surrender their lives completely by going ahead and, and being even willing to go ahead and pray to you know, to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord
1: and Savior. I'd give him the challenge right there. I'd give him the challenge right there. Hey, listen, you've got nothing to lose. I mean, we've just discovered that from a biblical point of view, you haven't been born again. So let's do a little test. Let's do the born again challenge here. Uh, You can do it on your own. But here's my challenge to you. Go to God and say, hey, this man's talking to me about rebirth. I want to know. Tell me, have I been born again? Give me this new eyes. Give me the spirit. I will do whatever you want to do. And say, if you want to do it now, let's pray together. See if they would do it. You know, and those who are truly seeking will. Those who are truly seeking and are shy will go home and do it. But that, I mean, it's not in our power to save anybody. It's not our words that will do it. We're just trying our best to share the gospel, share who Jesus is and, And, uh, but if you have this dialogue going and you've met with them six times, I think you're in a prime opportunity to keep reaching these young men. And if you don't reach them on their mission, you're planting seeds to get them later. It's just like those Adams Road guys. Those, uh, you know, uh, 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 Micah of Adams Road, he was on his mission and someone preached the gospel to him and talked to him through the Bible, said, read the Bible. He was a seeker. He did it. And and there were probably guys who that pre, pastor did the same thing to who went home and did it. And then there were some who the seed fell on wayside soil, Satan gobbled it up, and they remain Mormon today. But you're doing your job.
0: Now, as far as the literature that I've been giving them, it seems like because their schedule is so hectic that many of the times they've come back, they haven't even had a chance to even read some of the stuff that I, I, I gave them. Um yeah besides the hour that they'll spend with me when they come over here. So it just seems like I just can't cover enough territory and get enough uh, information to them where I'm having that much of an impact.
1: Yeah, well, again, it's seed planting, and they're not there to learn. You know, they are there to teach. And I'm surprised they keep coming back to you if you've been this, uh, if you've been this aggressive in, in, in countering. And the only reason they're coming back is they believe somehow that you are taking the bait and that they have a better chance of bringing you in than you have of bringing them out, and so they come back. But if they get the sense that you don't and never will believe them, they're not going to come back again.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. God bless you. Hey, well, God bless you too. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye. We're going to David and Bountiful, who has a question about Kolob. (laughs) I don't know if there's hotels. (laughs) What's happening? Is this Sean? It is. Sean, so I've got a question for you.
0: Uh, first off, uh, the spiritual, the, this uh, baptism, do you believe that a person needs to be baptized with water when, you know, he's speaking with Nicodemus, Jesus, and he says, uh, you know, born from above, and born of spirit and from above, uh, and then John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, and so on and so forth. He who comes after me, the Messiah, baptizes you with fire. And do you, I know you baptize with water, but do you believe it's necessary?
1: I believe it's necessary for believers to do what Jesus and what the early apostles did. But well, so,
0: Jesus didn't baptize anyone.
1: Well, I, I know, but he was baptized. So right. uh, okay. and, and Paul didn't baptize anyone either. So we know that right. if it was really necessary to salvation, I'm sure Paul would have participated in it. So, in so tr- way uh,
0: Okay, okay. So it might not have been
1: necessary for salvation, I guess. I wouldn't think water baptism is necessary for salvation any more than circumcision was necessary for a Jew to be a Jew. But every Jew would be circumcised out of the honor of following God and what he said to do. Just like a Christian will do what is uh, told for him to do. But in terms of of salvation, how could someone who's driving off a cliff on accident and crying out to God, forgive me, I believe Jesus, and, and and God reveres that faith, how could he be baptized? How could the thief on the cross be baptized? But that's not the point. The point is, if you believe, be baptized. That's, it's a beautiful well, I agree. thing.
0: I agree. Actually, I agree. with you. I just want your point of view on it. And I do have one other, uh, one other thing I want to point out to you. Uh, you know, the, the, in the ancient Samaria when they found the ancient writings, when they dug them up, I don't know, Zechariah Sitchin, you ever read any of his books? They're kind of off. No. Yeah, they're, they're kind of out there. But he says that uh, the, the ancient Samarians that they believe that the gods came from
1: a planet called Kolob. The same as the Book of Mormon. It's not the Book of Mormon, hey, Mormon that teaches it, but... Uh, or whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know enough at all about the ancient Strasia. Sumerians, but uh, I would believe that if that was ever taught and it was in enough books, Joseph Smith probably heard about it, and uh, so he included that into his uh, band I didn't hear about the Zechariah Sitchin book, because, see, the Sumerian... No, I agree with you. I don't believe in Joseph Smith. I believe in the Right. 12 12. But that came out later, you're saying?
0: Yeah, it came Zachariah in Zachariah just like the tw- last 20 years. In the Sumerian yeah. text,
1: they didn't go dig in the Sumerian until after Joseph Smith was dead and gone. Well, let us do the research on that Kolob. Guess what? We have five seconds left. We love you. Tune in next week. We're going to hit a great thing that's going to shake you on the Book of Mormon. See you then. Anybody?